scriptures today will be from various verses from Proverbs. You can read along on the back of your bulletin. They'll also be up here on the screen. Beginning with Proverbs 13. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. The plans of the diligent lead to profit, as surely as haste leads to poverty. The ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but a poor man hears no threat. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove from me far, far away falsehood and lying, and give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. Do not become weary to make yourself rich. Stop trusting in your own insight. Will you let your eyes glance at riches? If you do, they are gone, for they surely will sprout wings and fly off to heaven like an eagle. Riches and honor are with me, wisdom, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield better than choice silver. This is God's word. Our messages in March will not rhyme, unfortunately. Um, I can't match that. But they will be about making great decisions about wealth. The Bible, in many ways, this Bible you hopefully have in your hands or nearby, is a story about wealth. It's a story about God's wealth that he generously gives to us with the intention then that we will then generously pass it on to other people. And he gives in many ways. Let me tell you about a few of them. First of all, the first way he gives is he has created us in his own image. Unlike animals, the beasts of the field, the fish of the sea, etc., God has made us in such a way that he's given us all of his qualities, but in lesser degrees. So he's given us a moral conscience. He's given us the ability to create, to reason, to imagine. And not only that, but possessing each of these mini-me qualities, we get to take them into every situation in life and so represent God to other people. So the first way he gives to us is giving his image to us, to be image bearers. The ultimate way, he gives to us is through his son, Jesus Christ. That Jesus, though he was rich, made himself poor. That through his poverty, you and I might become rich. What does that mean? How is Jesus rich? Jesus lived for eternity in this loving, free-flowing, immediate relationship with God the Father, with God the Holy Spirit. And he enjoyed this free-flowing relationship. It was amazing, but by stepping down here to earth to live the life we couldn't, to die the death we deserve, he wanted to include us in this free-flowing, loving relationship, a relationship of great wealth. There's also multiple ways that he gives to us. He gives us, those who trust him, super-empowered gifts with which we are called to serve others and help encourage and include them into this divine wealth, this relationship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So all kinds of ways that God gives to us. So it's no surprise that the New Testament talks primarily about wealth in terms of God giving to us and us responding by giving back to him and to other people. Giving back to him, giving to other people. So three Sundays from now, we're going to talk about giving wealth. 
But in many ways, that's the easy part, right? Because it's not like we can stop there. Because 95% of us carry one of these. It's a wallet. So if you have a wallet with you, just take a moment to take it out and thumb through it for a minute. Probably 95% of us have a wallet. Just take it out, start to thumb through it. I want to call your attention to what's likely a few things in your wallet, if it's anything like mine. Our wallets tend to contain certain realities about wealth that go just beyond giving it. For instance, I have in here business cards, which indicate that I labor to get it, labor to get wealth. Wealth does not usually, sometimes does, but not usually just come out of the blue tooth fairy style, right? Most of us have to actually labor to get it. I also have in here, if I can get it out, a debit card, which is linked to an account in which I save wealth. I save it. Mind you, I save very little right now, but, but true enough, there is something in there. I save it. I have also in here, happened to be in my wallet, a, a smartphone, which indicates that I use wealth. I've made decisions to spend wealth in certain ways. And finally in here, I have uh, paper money that I can give, primarily to my family, all right, that I can give away, especially when people are bothering me. I say, here, take it. <laughs> I give it away, mostly, mostly singles, as you notice, because uh, what I carry around. So yes, God does call us to respond generously with wealth because he has been generous to us with his, but we still have wallets, which indicates something else about wealth. And Proverbs helps us make great decisions with these grayer areas of life, getting wealth and using it. And this morning, we're going to talk about getting it. And here's the message in a nutshell this morning about wealth. It's this. In all cases, get it. In some cases, keep it. And in no case, spend your life on it. Now, let me say that again. In all cases, get it. In some cases, keep it. And in no case, spend your life on it. And that's going to be kind of our, our roadmap this morning as well. So first, wealth. In all cases, get it. And what's interesting about wealth is that God, despite what some might believe, is for profit. He is on the side of making a profit. Many people misquote the Bible about this. They say, wealth is bad, money is bad. And they quote a verse saying, money is the root of all kinds of evil. But in fact, when they are saying that, they're actually slightly misquoting the Bible. And in slightly misquoting the Bible, they're really getting the point wrong. From 1 Timothy chapter 6, which says that the love of money is the root of many kinds of evil. And there's a big difference. An inordinate love or an over-love of money causes us to try to get it and use it Use more of it to try to control life when only God is sovereign. An inordinate love for money makes us want to get it and get more of it to secure our life when God is the only one who can protect it. Inordinate love for money makes us want to amass more of it to quench these desires that we have when only God can satisfy them in reality. See, it's not money that is bad. It's a love of money. It's an over-love. It's a misplaced love. Jesus himself was for profit. All right? He was a prophet for profit, you might say. It's terrible. I knew. 
That was real low-hanging fruit saying that, sorry. But he was for profit. In, in, in Luke 19, Jesus tells the parable of the minus, in which a nobleman goes away, and he says, hey, guys, I'm going to leave you with some money. Do something with it. He literally says, engage in business until I come back. This parable primarily has to do with the investment of our lives until the day that Jesus returns. But it also clearly condones a few things. It condones profit. It condones credit and even inequality. In other words, those things we always say are bad. Fund managers, bankers, that person who bought a new car, right? And here's Jesus kind of talking about all these things and the way we use money. In Luke 16, Jesus tells another parable whose main point is you're supposed to make use of unrighteous wealth. And Jesus actually takes Christians to task in that parable saying the sons of this world are more shrewd about these matters than the sons of light. In other words, be be wise about the way you invest, that you use, you spend, and you keep your money. So God is for profit, and we see it also here in our Proverbs, right? We see that the diligent work should produce profit. Proverbs 13, 11, wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. And that's used positively, right? That's said positively. Chapter 21, verse 5, the plans of the diligent lead to profit. To profit, as surely as hate leads to poverty. Both Proverbs clearly imply that it is diligent labor that's meant to produce profit. That's the way God has designed this world. Our labor, being faithful in it, doing it regularly, doing it for God, is meant to produce profit. And that's the way the world generally works. But it also says something else in these Proverbs, doesn't it, about wealth, about profit. Namely, how we profit. We're supposed to profit, what does these Proverbs say? Basically, slowly. God has a get-rich-slow scheme. Proverbs warns us to beware the heart that wants to hit that home run, to get all our money, that wants to to throw that Hail Mary, that wants to, to get that six right, right away. And in doing so, amass that wealth, amass riches that we really desire all at once. As a kid, I I loved being outside. I I just loved it. I loved playing games of every sort. And and my mom would call me inside to come and eat my snack and that sort of thing. She'd always have to lure me in with a game. Because I just love games. I love playing them. I love playing with other people. I love to watch them. I love the competition. I love that sort of thing. I don't know if you love that as well, but I did. So she'd lure me inside with a game, and that game was turning on the television and watching a game show. So she let me watch an occasional game show, and my favorite was a game show, at least on American television, called Press Your Luck. How many of you guys have seen this game show? I just want to, I don't want to really outdate myself here. Oh, man, it's so few. I hope a few of you just aren't listening. Um, Press Your Luck, the object of this game is the answered questions to earn spins, and every spin the, the cursor would move from box to box on a random prize board. And it was called Press Your Luck because you ran, ran about a 50-50 chance of landing on a prize or cash or on something called a whammy. If you've ever heard the phrase whammy, this is where this comes from. A whammy which would basically bankrupt you. Thankfully, you get to spend again and earn more money. But what basically happened is people's money went up and down throughout the game. And at most, people at the end of the game would earn between ten and $20,000, except for Michael Larson. Michael Larson appeared on the show in the early 80s, and he won 110,000 U.S. dollars, worth today 
uh, through inflation, about $250,000. Now, Michael was an on-again, off-again ice cream truck worker who basically was getting tired of not getting rich quickly. And he told his wife, I want to try something different. So what he did is he taped and watched episodes of Press Your Luck until he found a pattern to the game. He noticed that the fourth and eighth squares always contained cash and never had a whammy in them. Then he figured out sequentially when those squares would come up. Specifically, the four square would land, 2, 12, 1, 9, 4. And he looked at the spatially and he did the math. 2, 12, 1, 9, 4. 2, 12, 1, 9, 4. And he would press the button. And every time, he would win money. He amassed more and more and more in this game show until finally the host of the game show was like, please stop. He was about to have a heart attack. He was so nervous for this guy. He was an ice cream truck worker, but now... I was getting up to $90,000 and was a minute, a second away from losing all of it. So he ended up with $110,000. After a long debate among CBS executives, having learned what kind of taken place, he still got the money. Cinderella story, and of course he lived happily ever after, right? Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead to profit, as surely as haste leads to poverty. Once you pop, you can't stop, that sort of thing, right? He tried to run his own promotions business, similar to like game shows in which he tried to spin his money into more profit. He then learned about a local radio promotion promising a $30,000 prize for matching a $1 U.S. bill serial number to a random number read on the air. So he withdrew half of his earnings, half of his earnings from the bank account in single-dollar bills, And when he found out he couldn't win, he deposited half one day, left the rest lying around his home, and he was burglarized and lost it. This is the kind of thing that happens, though, because haste leads to poverty when you try to get rich quick. Some of us are not going to be able to relate to going on to a game show, but some of us do need to walk away from that hope that wealth is going to strike like lightning into our lives. And for many of us, that's a, that's a real big disappointment because we're hoping in that. We're actually thinking that this could happen. I'm holding this out. Whether it's someone in my family who's 90-something years old could, you know, pass away, leave me something. Whether it's earnings that come through an unlikely source, whatever it might be, we need to walk away from that misplaced hope. And that's disappointing for a lot of us. Some of us will hear that and say, well, how then can I amass any wealth in my life? How then can I gain wealth? Look again at Proverbs 21, verse 5. It's not just the diligent, is it? It's the plans of the diligent that lead to profit. The plans. In other words, a diligent person is someone who not only works hard, but plans smart. So here are some, some diligent plans to sort of get rich slowly. Number one, be someone who puts together a budget, a zero-based budget. A zero-based budget is, that your income and your expenditures equal zero dollars, at least on paper. But that's where we got to start. I heard someone once say that making a budget, making a realistic budget, is like giving yourself a raise. Why do they say that? It's because you start to control where and how you spend your money. It doesn't just control you through impulse spending. You start to actually make decisions to get a hold of it. So for us, Katie and I use a simple spreadsheet that takes into account our income and our expenditures, and we put it as a Google Doc, Google document online so that either of us can make little notes, 
on purchases. We can input anything we need to. We can see where we're at for the rest of the month. We can make decisions about, you know, where and how we're spending money. Do we buy the double stuff Oreo cookies or the generic? You guys know that's a hard decision, so I'll leave it there. Put together a zero-based budget. Make a 6- to 12-month goal. We have a, a bottom-line target goal for our expense account at the end of every month from January to June of this year. And the goal is we want to hit that target. It's just a goal. We want to hit that target so I can take Katie on a 15th anniversary trip this year. We're celebrating our 15th anniversary this year. I want to take her on a trip in the fall. And so we're hoping to hit a target at the end of every month. Uh, you can use it on something else. We once used a six-month goal to, to raise money to, as a family, we could, we could actually sponsor a Compassionate International child in Honduras, a kid who was in need, whatever it might be. Setting a goal helps motivate diligent work, helps you celebrate those goals, and also celebrate the little-by-little little gathering talks about in chapter 13, verse 11. So budget, set a goal, pay off your debts. Specifically, pay off your debts using the debt snowball. This is a concept first devised by a guy named Larry Burkett of Christian Financial Concepts, the debt snowball. And by the way, if you, if you don't know what a zero-based budget is or a debt snowball, just, just Google it. The first page has some great, great stuff. I checked it all out. Pay off your debts using the debt snowball. This means sit down, if this is you, list out all your debts, and pay in ascending order, starting with the smallest remaining balance. And what, this, what, what happens is if you pay off that lowest balance, once that pay, is paid off, you can use that same amount of money and the monthly payment you used to pay for it, that, that payment that was just going into thin air, to pay off the next thing on your list, and then the next thing on your list, and then the next thing on your list. So you're actually not using any more money than you used when you were in debt. Does that make sense? You, you basically, what used to go towards monthly payments is now going off to pay off balances and get freedom from your debt. These are some things that diligent people do to get rich slowly, diligent plans. Because in all cases, we're supposed to get wealth, Proverbs says. In some cases, though, we're supposed to keep it. In some cases, we're supposed to keep it. Look here at Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. What immediately strikes me about this, which is this the only prayer, by the way, in the entire book of Proverbs, is Agur seems to be praying contrary to wisdom found elsewhere in places like chapter 3, verse 16, chapter 8, verse 18, chapter 22, verse 4, which suggests that abundant wealth is actually a positive fruit of wisdom. Not just riches, but abundant riches. And yet Agur is saying, no. This guy whom we know very little about otherwise prays, give me neither poverty nor riches, but only what I need. This is indicative of a man who's very much in touch with his frailty very much in touch with his weakness. And it's very interesting because we notice if you read the text, when does it come during his life? It comes, this is at the end of his life. He's talking about before I die. The commentators say it's likely he's talking here at the end of his life, a person who has already garnered much wisdom, and yet he's still deeply concerned, still 
about the corrupting potential of holding on to excess wealth, of just, of just having it in his life and what it can do to him as a worshiper of God. Everyone wants to be the kind of person who can handle great wealth, right? We all want to be that kind of person. We all want to believe we're the kind of person who will be fine when we get wealth. We'll spend it wisely, prudently, generously. Is anyone wise enough to admit that they, though, are like Hagar? Hey, are are you someone wise enough who might be able to admit that you cannot handle that kind of money? Should his prayer also be your prayer? I want to talk about this for a moment. Proverbs 13.8 says this, because holding on to money, holding on to excess wealth can be a heavy burden. Proverbs 13.8, the ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but a poor man hears no threat. This is a remarkably wise statement because it's saying two things about having excess wealth. On the one hand, you can pay off a debt, a ransom. On the other hand, people will ask you to pay a ransom. That makes sense? So on the one hand, you've got this excess money which you can pay stuff off. On the other hand, you're going to be a target in your life. People will not only look to take from you, even well-meaning people, but our enemy Satan himself will target you. Because Satan's goal is to have you worship, trust, put your hope in anything above Jesus Christ. The Bible calls this idolatry. So he will, you, you will become a target for Satan to basically put money above Jesus Christ and put the things that money can buy above Jesus. Consider, for instance, when you think about this question, and it's an important one, am I the kind of person who can handle great wealth? Are you prone to idolize adulation and honor? Because money can help you with that. It can help you get friends who want to know you and say nice things about you because you have it. Money also serves the idol of security. I know here this morning there are savers among us. Saving money makes you feel more secure about your future, so that your future is not really in God's hands so much as Butterfield's, right? Or some hedge fund, or probably in the current job, which helps you gain more and more money. There are some of you here this morning that at an honest moment, you in fact moved here to make a little extra money, to, to, to pad your savings, to secure your future before returning home. And sure, it's never the number one reason you tell people, because no one wants to admit that you're here really because of, you know, Securing your financial future slash covetousness or greed. No one wants to say that. But in an honest moment, that is why you're even here. And maybe then this should be your prayer. The prayer of Hagar, give me neither poverty nor riches, but just give me, Lord, what I need. The, and the fact that this is the only prayer in the book of Proverbs tells me something. That this is not something you can just figure out on your own. We need to go to God and ask this question honestly with him. God, am I the kind of person who can handle excess wealth? It's a question, by the way, Katie and I have been pondering this week, and and it is a tough question. Am am I the kind of person? Are we the kind of people that can handle excess wealth? I'm not going to tell you the answer that we came up with. That's between us and God. But, But we're a good example because maybe we, like you, we don't have like a big surplus in savings. We like kind of have enough. We're not, we're not like, Living hand to mouth, exactly, but at the same time, like we don't have enough to spend on like extra stuff. You know what I mean? But still it's important to ask this question because you never know when you're going to amass more wealth. There was a a distraught man who was once riding his horse up to John Wesley. John Wesley is now a well-known 18th century British evangelist, founder of the Methodist movement. 
This man was riding his horse, huffing and puffing when he got to him. He said, Mr. Wesley, something terrible has happened. Your house, it's burned down. Wesley digested the news and wisely replied, no, you mean the Lord's house has burned to the ground. That just means I have one less responsibility. Now, Wesley replies, his reply displays some wisdom on two fronts. Number one, God owns all things. We are simply wealth managers. We are simply money managers of his. He owns, the cattle on a, uh, uh, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly light. Scripture is clear. All things belong to God. We are simply managers. But number two, which flows from that truth, is that with great wealth comes great responsibility. Right? As Wesley said, actually, that's one less responsibility. The stewardship, guys, of wealth is among the gravest and most dangerous responsibilities God can give. And it's the kind of danger that can be both very positive, like it's a risk, but there can be great things done with it, but also very negative. Like C.S. Lewis says about very good things, the best things, the very best things, are also the most perverted for evil. They also be perverted into the worst things. So it's true about wealth. It's not for the wimps or the weak-minded. It requires diligence, wise planning, a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, and in many cases, a faith that can move mountains. Do you want that is an honest question to ask. But when you ask that question between you and God, when you do, there's something practical you can do about it. So first, ask that question with you and God, and there's something practical you can do about it. Dave Ramsey, probably no more experienced and well-known financial advisor who approaches money from a, from a biblical point of view, after working through a zero-based budget, he advocates using ratios or percentages to determine how much wealth you should keep. It's unwise to say, well, I'm going to give away X amount of dollars this year because money is relative. Wealth is relative and always changing. He says instead, use percentages. So let's say, as a very practical point, a practical example, you make $100,000, okay, just to use an easy number. And after making a realistic budget, you can save $20,000 a year. You have $20,000 of overflow that you're not using for the necessities of life. Here are some things you can do. Figure out some extra giving for your overflow. Assign it a percentage, say 30%. That would be, what, $6,000 of the $20,000. Invest, further investing for your overflow of money. Let's say you assign that 30%. Again, do this between you and God. Then you determine the extra lifestyle choices you're going to make based on your overflow. In other words, pampering yourself. This is a big one, right? What's that going to be? What's that number going to be? 20% 20% is the number I used here, $4,000. Invest in your children's university fund, another 20% for you. You can make your own lines, but the point is to, to get on paper how you're going to use that excess wealth. And are you the kind of person who can handle having excess wealth? <laughs> or are you going to be the kind of person who needs to give a higher percentage away? Because you know you can't handle it like agar. Ramsey says this plan has not only helped his family grow wealth, but has helped him give generously, celebrate the successes in their life, and ensure that additional wealth doesn't drive them, but they drive it. Does that make sense? Because extra wealth does that, doesn't it? It begins to drive us. We go, and we, we go into dealerships and we look at new cars. We go buy homes and say, yeah, not too long from now, without actually sitting down and saying, wait a minute, God, am I the kind of person who can handle that? Now back to our proverb here lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? So if you find yourself wealthy, well off, doing okay, whatever you want to call it, 
middle upper class, <laughs> even though all of us here at Louisville and Cayman are pretty much upper class. You find yourself with excess wealth, yet you're far from God. There's an easy answer to this question. Am I someone who can handle wealth? The answer is, if I'm far from God, the answer is no. I have clearly had money as a replacement for God in my life. So a great place to start is by getting on your knees and praying this prayer that Agur prayed. But Proverbs gives further wisdom. We've talked about how in all cases get wealth little by little. In some cases keep it. In no case spend your life on it. So Proverbs 23 verse 4. Do not become weary to make yourself rich. As one translation puts it, don't wear yourself out to make yourself rich. Each of us will spend our lives on something. It's what we do as human beings. We give our lives to something. We, we give ourselves over to something. The Bible calls this worship. We, we look to something to fulfill us, to make us complete, to give us the love that we never had before. Now, Proverbs agrees and, and thus talks about riches in two different senses. It talks about riches in terms of the dot and the line. The dot are the riches in the here and now, the riches we typically think of, money, our savings account, what's in our wallet, that sort of thing. There is, however, a line, eternity, past, and present. These are riches that have always existed and will last forever. Notice how small the dot is, by the way. But there are riches, Proverbs talks about, that have always existed, will exist forever, and Proverbs talks about this too. Look at chapter 8, verse 18 and 19. Riches and honor are with me. Talking here about wisdom. Riches and honor are with wisdom, me. Enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold. Wait a minute, what is this? Enduring wealth? Fruit that's better than gold? What's going on here? Something different's going on here. I want us to do something a little interesting here. I want us to open our Bibles to a different place here. So if you have a Bible, or you can find one nearby in these chair pockets, we're going to turn to Proverbs 8. We're going to keep reading from this proverb. Proverbs 8 is going to be on page 453 if you're using one of the Bibles we provided, 453. Proverbs 8. We started reading verses 18 and 19. I want us to keep reading here in Proverbs 8, verses 20 and 21. I walk, speaking here, wisdom is still speaking. I walk in the way of righteousness, in paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. Treasuries literally here can mean vaults. In other words, there's a kind of riches that can't be touched, that no one can take, that are secure forever, that endure, as the verses we just also read said. Wealth that will endure, it's also not earned, right? I grant an inheritance to those who love me. So what's going on here? We get a little bit more of an idea if we keep reading here in Proverbs chapter 8. Again, this is wisdom still speaking, right? Or so we think. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there was no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth, before he who had made the earth with his fields, or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, 
when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Now, who, class, does this sound like? Who was at the beginning of the world with God, there at creation, delighting, being delighted in, person at the right hand of the creator of the world, who is this wisdom side by side with God, daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in the inhabited world, delighting in the children of man. Proverbs is hinting at a wealth that has always been and will always be. But it's not paper money or gold. It's a person, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says that Jesus became to us, us who have trusted him, wisdom from God. He is wisdom, and he is, well, Colossians chapter 1, he is before all things, Jesus is. All things were created through him and for him and by him. It's Jesus that Proverbs is hinting towards because all of the Bible is hinting towards this time where a Redeemer will redeem us from all inordinate and wrong loves, including the wrong love of money. And it comes in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ are immeasurable riches of grace, Ephesians 2, verse 7. Now, why why is Jesus so important to this topic of amassing wealth? Well, for anyone who's ever had a hard time handling wealth, who has wealth but is, is full, as Agur talked about it, and doesn't see really a need for the living God, for whom, for whom wealth has become a functional God in their lives, the love of money cannot be removed. It must be replaced. The love of money can't simply be sort of dissected, and you get the tweezers out, and you take it apart, and you sort of spoon it out in small doses. It has to be replaced. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, uh, Tim Keller tells the story of a young Andrew Carnegie. You know, this guy is a a Scottish-American. Carnegie Steel Company became the most profitable business in the world in the 19th century, late 19th century. And early on in his successes, a, a, a very young, just age 33, Carnegie wanted to protect himself from the love of money. Look how much insight he has into his own heart. He sounds like someone who, who went face-to-face with Agur's prayer. Listen to this. As an already wealthy man, by the way, he wrote, man must have an idol. The amassing of wealth is one of the, world, sorry, one of the worst species of idolatry. No idol is more debasing than the worship of money. Whatever I engage in, I must push inordinately. Therefore, should I be careful to choose the life which will be the most elevating in character. To continue much longer overwhelmed by business cares and with most of my thoughts wholly upon the way to make more money in the shortest amount of time. Again, what path was he on? That should give us a clue what's going to happen. To make more money in the shortest amount of time must degrade me beyond hope of permanent recovery. I will resign business at age 35, but during the ensuing two years, I'll spend the afternoons in securing instruction and reading systematically. In other words, he's going to go outside He's going to read his paper. He's going to sit in his hammock and read a good book. 
like Agar. Here's a man who, who lucidly, at a young age, recognized the danger of amassing wealth, which is always difficult for those who are already rich, right? Not only those already rich, those who are willing to admit it out loud that it could be a problem. Amazing. Yet despite such insight into his own heart, Carnegie would go on to do these kinds of things. Because of a bottom line, for a bottom line, to amass more wealth, he would force his steelworkers to work 12-hour shifts on floors so hot they had to, to nail wooden platforms into their shoes and messing up their feet, say the least. They made such a low wage that families had to live together in, in, in horrible and impoverished conditions so that Carnegie could improve his bottom line. It's easy to judge Carnegie for this, but in reality, he's like any of us, frail. Right? I mean, he, had, he had the best intentions, a realistic plan. He shared that plan out loud to have some accountability, which few very wealthy people do, and still Carnegie could not remove the love of money from his life because he needed to replace it with a greater love and a more lasting payout. Riches and honor are with me, cries wisdom in Jesus. Enduring wealth and righteousness, my fruit is better than gold. He needed the lasting wealth of knowing Jesus Christ, and my friends, so do we. Let's pray. God, no matter where we're at, in our sort of financial state, whether we're just living paycheck to paycheck, whether we have just a little bit saved up for an emergency fund, or whether we're slowly amassing wealth to benefit others. Father, we need to all ask the question of ourselves, are we the kinds of people who can handle excess wealth, who can handle money being in bank account, can, can handle money being there to use at our leisure for whatever we want. This man, this agger who wrote very few proverbs at the end of this book, was honest enough to look at his own heart and say, I can't handle it. So God, give me neither poverty, but also not riches either. Give me only what I need. God, help help us work out practically what that means between us and you. Help us have a conversation with you go to prayer with you about that honest question. And when we do, help us work out practically what we need to be giving away, the percentage of money we need to be passing on to others out of generosity towards them because stewardship is a a heavy responsibility. And Father, for those of us who have failed, and many of us have failed, we love our stuff. We love the security that money can bring. We love the control it gives us in our life. A number of us are subject to the idol of the love of money. And God, many of us here would be like, well, I just need to make a budget. I just need to be more generous. I just need to give. But it's not simply an idol we can remove. It must be replaced. So for many of us here, we need to begin by replacing the God of money with the God of Jesus Christ, who alone can give us riches that endure unto eternity. Lasting pleasure that will never fade. All through this God-man, Jesus, help us bow our knee to him this morning. Since his name we pray, amen.